You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Today on our Norwalk campus, Pastor Ken Bringus concludes our Death to Selfie series with a message on the life of Daniel. Thus far in this year, how does it feel? Does it feel like you have been surviving? Or does it feel like you've been thriving, all right? No, don't expound on your answer when you give this to your person next to you, okay? Just tell them one word. It feels like I've been either thriving or surviving. Go ahead, ready, go. Be honest now, you can say both. You can say both, that's fine, all right? Yeah, let you off the hook there. Good, good. Okay, now. The other day, I watched the Lakers' last um, preseason game against Golden State, and I'm like, man, the Lakers have been surviving for these past four years. But man, how many of you know they're going to move from the season of surviving to a season of thriving? Yes, because there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. And I want to start out with the difference between surviving and thriving today because that's what Daniel in the Bible does. He learns to move from a a, sort of a, a, a season of having to survive to actually thriving in a land that you would have thought would have required only survival. Many of us live kind of in between survival and thriving And listen, there's nothing wrong with surviving. How many of you know there are seasons you just got to survive, right? How many of you been through midterm week, right? Finals week if you're a student. I get that. I got to get through this. Or some of you go through seasons where it's just painful and, you know, you can't make ends meet like you used to financially. And so we just got to survive this season, get through. The goal of surviving is what? Stay alive, don't die. And sometimes that's a good goal. Depends on your situation. But thriving is about something else. The focus of thriving is not just existing or just staying alive. The focus of thriving is fulfilling your purpose, finding meaning, making a contribution that is beyond you. Many of us don't ever get to that place. We just get stuck in survival mode and we never move on to thriving. But we were all made for something more than just survival, weren't we? God wants us to thrive. Jesus said it like this. He said, you know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if I might add, the thief comes to, to get you stuck in survival mode. But Christ, I have come, says Jesus, that you might have life and life abundant. Yeah, to the full. So, Um, I want us to look today at a biblical character named Daniel. He's actually a a biblical hero, I would say. He and his three friends found themselves in a situation where they needed to exercise huge survival skills. But over time, he moves from surviving to a long and meaningful life of thriving. I grew up hearing about Daniel. How many of you grew up hearing stories about Daniel? And what did those stories usually involve? It was a certain animal. Yeah, okay. It was like, rawr. Daniel in the lion's den. I know it was a good story. And, you know, it was like, wow, how did he? But listen, Daniel's story 
from a much larger perspective, is actually an inspirational example of how to thrive in the most hostile circumstances. Daniel thrived working for a government in a government position. Think about the equivalent of that today. He worked in the government. And he lasted in that government through the reign of at least six Babylonian kings and one Persian king. Seven different kings over 70 years. I mean, that was unheard of at that time to last that long in a position that he held. His faith thrived in a life he would have never chosen for himself. So here's the thought I want to leave with you today, that sometimes the circumstances that prompt you to survive can become invitations to build a life that thrives. Because Daniel doesn't just survive Babylon, he learns to thrive in Babylon. So I want us to read through this story in chapter one, and I'm going to give a little bit of running commentary and then leave you with two practical points today that I hope will get you thinking. The book of Daniel, for the most part, was penned by Daniel himself, and it opens with a tragedy. The context of Daniel is tragedy. Let's start from verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar, say Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he's the evil king. He was the king of Babylon. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, this is a whole, like, tragic period of Israel's history that was, uh, you got to understand that, you know, God had been saying to his people for hundreds of years, be faithful to me, be faithful to me, don't worship idols, don't worship idols, and guess what Israel did? They were unfaithful, they worshiped idols, through hundreds and hundreds of years, and God made a covenant with his people, right? You be my people, I will be your God, you be faithful to me, I'll protect you, I'll fight for you, you know, I'll fight all your battles, I'll, I'll cause you to prosper in the land of promise and all that, if you would just be what? Faithful to me, it's like a marriage, right? That's what makes marriage so powerful. It's, it's about a covenant bond. It's loyalty to each other for a lifetime. So this is what God wants. But Israel constantly breaks covenant with God, constantly is unfaithful. So if God finally says, I want a divorce, and the divorce was the exile, was allowing Babylon to come in and take his own people that he called by his name out of Egypt. Now he's about to allow them to go into a land that they have not known, and he's gonna allow this, this foreign country, this government, this, these foreign people to, uh, to conquer them. So this is the context. So he allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in. Now watch, if you were a resident of Jerusalem during that time, 587 BC, you would have witnessed a marauding army of Babylonians invade your city and spread destruction everywhere. You would probably have witnessed some of your friends and family put to death, injured or even violated. Homes would have been destroyed. Societies, you know, institutions in the city would have been destroyed, businesses. And then you would have watched the most holy place that you grew up learning. This is the place where the presence of God dwells. The temple, you would have watched as the temple would not only be desecrated, but destroyed. 
This is the, the temple was like the central religious symbol of the identity of Israel as a nation. Okay, this is a, it's a big deal, folks. The destruction of the temple. Now, not only did it mark like the literal end of the nation of Israel. This is the literal end of the nation of Israel, folks. When the temple gets destroyed, when Jerusalem gets taken over, Israel as a nation is automatically done. But not only that, this would have been, in the ancient world, this would have been about, okay, my God is more powerful than your God. So I want you to see this because when the Babylonians come in, they served a God whose name was Marduk. It was the chief God of the Babylonian religion. When Nebuchadnezzar conquers the city of Jerusalem and desecrates the temple and begins to take away all the articles of the temple of the Lord, you gotta understand, this is, what this communicates is, the Babylonian God Marduk is more powerful than Israel's God Yahweh. We have just defeated not just you, but all of your gods. Now, I want you to see how Daniel communicates this, all right? Because this is what the understanding would have been, especially even in the minds of Israel, Israelites who were being taken prisoner, dragged from the city of Jerusalem, and forced to go and live in Babylon, the exiles, all right? They might have been thinking, man, that might be true that in fact the Babylonian gods have defeated our God, Yahweh. But look what Daniel, look how Daniel says it, okay? This is an amazing tragedy. But look how Daniel says it. He goes, the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. And what did the Lord do? He permitted him to take some of the sacred objects of the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon, placed them in the tree treasure house of his God. Oh, oh, so this is not the Babylonian God Marduk has defeated the God of the Israelites. No, no. Daniel looks back and writes about it and goes, no, the Lord permitted this. Who's in control, folks? The Lord is still, I don't care if it looks like every principality and power has defeated God, God is still in control. That's what Daniel's trying to say. It doesn't matter how bad it looks, God is in control here. It doesn't matter if it looks like the movement of Jesus has ended on a cross on Friday afternoon. It's not the end of the story. God is still in control. Sunday is still coming, and I'm about to preach an Easter message right now. God is still in control. That's incredible. Because Israel has just has been told all these years that God is going to judge you because you've been worshiping idols. <laughs> and so, yes. Maybe they're experiencing some of the consequences of their, of their actions, but guess what? I don't care if you're experiencing the consequences of your dumb choices. God is still in control. And he's still at work. You know how Israel knows this? Put yourself in the shoes of a normal Israelite who's being taken into exile. Your temple is gone. There's nowhere to go to worship. 
Your land has been taken from you. The land of promise where you were supposed to live out your intended future with your family as a blessing from God. It's gone. And now you're being dragged into a land you have no idea what is going to happen to you there. You're uncertain of the future. It's easy to start thinking, isn't it? Maybe God has abandoned us after all because we committed such great sin and we were so disloyal to him that maybe it's true he's abandoned us. You think like that too. God, this is the 531st time I've confessed this sin to you. Maybe, maybe you've just given up on me. I'm here to tell you, and Daniel is here to tell you, he hasn't given up on you. That the other side of the coin of judgment is restoration. Did you hear me? The the other side of the coin of judgment, suffering the consequences of your sin, if you will, is restoration. God is ready and beginning and has already begun in this to restore his people. And he wants to give them hope. So watch. Uh, they, they, they get taken into exile. This is, this, is, this is a big deal, folks. Imagine if you had been forcefully removed from your home, brought into a foreign land, all of a sudden put amongst people who spoke a different language, practiced strange customs. And, and the customs that they practiced would have been things that you were taught growing up. Those are unholy types of life practices. Like, this is the situation. Quick note about Babylon. Babylon, in the scripture, is the personification of evil. All right? In fact, in Revelation, it talks about Babylon. Fallen is Babylon the great, right? Babylon is this this place that when heaven looks down on earth and says, let's uh, consolidate all the evil of of humanity and let's, let's put it into one place, they would say that place is Babylon. The religion of Babylon was basically built on the practice of the occult and the manipulation of demonic power. So... With that in mind, listen to these next verses. So the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family. That would have been Daniel and his friends and the nobility. Now, check this description out. So remember, Daniel's the one writing this book, okay? So look how Daniel describes himself. He's like, so humble, right? He's like, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. I love that. Now watch. Ashpenaz was to teach them, Daniel and his friends, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Okay, that's not just the language of Babylon, like how to speak Babylonian, whatever that was. But this is code for a whole lot of astrology and occult. The king... It goes on, says, assign them a daily amount of food from, and wine from the king's table. Now, this is food that Daniel and his, and his friends were, were told, th- this is not how a good uh, Jew, a good Israelite should live. This is not the kind of food you should be eating. They were taught that from the beginning of their upbringing. But now they're being served all this non-kosher food, right? 
And it says they were to be trained for how many years? Three years, and after that to enter the king's service. So basically, we're going to enroll you in a three years master's program of Babylon. We're going to teach you history, politics, religion, and language, okay? And we're going we're to change your view of reality. That's what we want to do with you so you can serve. So what did they do? Not only did they serve them different kinds of food they're not supposed to eat. Not only did they teach them and try to train them and maybe, you know, reorder their thinking, but watch, they also changed their names, now, I, I could go through all this, but I want to just sum this up by saying the names that they're given, they take away their name and say, you're, gonna, you're not going to be called Daniel anymore. We're going to call you Belshazzar, right? The names that they're given are names that are built around Babylonian gods. So let's take away everything that had to do with your faith, the faith of your upbringing, and let's, let's just uh, let's give you names and identities that are built around the gods of Babylon. This is crazy. What did these guys do? Watch. Here's the response. Daniel and his friends resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Wait, wait, wait. You mean God's in the picture here? Yeah. I thought God was defeated by the demon god Marduk. No, God is right here because God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid my lord the king who has assigned you your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than all the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel goes on and he says, well, I'll tell you what. He says to the guard, does he say, there's no way in heaven, dude, that we are ever going to eat that food. I would rather die than eat your unclean meat. Is that what he says? No. He says, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And all the vegetarians in the house said, okay, is there that many vegetarians in this house? Okay. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So the guy agrees to it and he tests them for 10 days. Now watch, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than all the, and any young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine. They were to drink and they gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, so now God's in the picture, isn't he? I'm going to honor your choice here, Daniel to not compromise. And it says, he says, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In other words, in other words, for those of you students in the room, they were the top of their class. Why? Because they studied hard? Not just because they studied hard. God was granting them favor. So he says, Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them how many times better? The level of their devotion to the Lord was the level of favor he granted them. He says, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom, and Daniel, now watch this. I know this, this is a loaded statement right here. Daniel remained there not until the first, not until at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, 
but the end of King Cyrus 70 years later. Think about this. Daniel, in a time when Israel as a nation is wondering, how do we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? How do we, watch, live out our faithfulness to God in a land that has ripped away our temple, that has ripped away our land? How do we do this in a culture that doesn't even acknowledge God anymore? I'm talking about America too, aren't I? (laughs) Somewhat. How do you live as the faithful people of God in a country, in a culture that is now hostile to your God? And you know what God's answer was? Where would you find the answer? In the life of the nation of Israel, the answer was people started to write about the story of Queen Esther, of Daniel. And all of a sudden, they start reading these stories about, hey, did you hear about Daniel? Who entered service, the service of King Nebuchadnezzar? And look, he remains faithful to God, even though he had to learn all of that junk, even though he had to learn about the occult, even though he had to learn uh, the language of the Babylonians. Even though they changed his name, he stayed faithful to God. It's possible. Say to the person next to you, it's possible. It's possible, young people, to be a doctor, to be a teacher, to be a businessman, to hold down a good job, a decent career, even though the environment around you is hostile to the God you serve. It's possible for you, watch this, to thrive in that field as someone who is faithful to the name of the Lord. In fact, I would say this, that it's only in exile that you see this kind of, this dynamic happening where the people of God now have to, uh, I'll use the word, improvise their faith a little bit. No one told Daniel how to do this. He's improvising, folks. When they said, we're going to change your name, when they said, we're going to force you to do a three years master's program and you're going to learn about all the occultic practices of Babylon. He's like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. But if I don't, they're going to kill me. How, I'm thinking like Daniel now, how, where do I like draw the line, right? And no one's telling him where. He picks a place. All right. I can't do it over there in that classroom. They changed my name. I'm not going to complain about that. But I will draw the line right here when it comes to my diet. And I'm not going to draw a hard and fast line. Notice how Daniel does it. He's like, he doesn't go, no way, I'm going to die. Kill me. I will never eat pork, right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? He kind of like negotiates. He's like, let me talk to you. Can we talk? Like, um, why don't you test us? You know what he does? This is my first point. In exile, Daniel experiments with faithfulness. This is improvisation without compromise. He experiments with how how would this work out? Like, 
I understand the principle of being loyal to God. I want to do that. But the temple's gone. The land is gone. In fact, I don't even think I have a copy of the law of Moses in front of me. How am I going to know what to do, how to be faithful to God in this moment? And Daniel says, I'm going to improvise. (laughs) And he says, this is where I'm going to draw the line, right here. He finds a way to serve an evil king and still remain loyal to God. Many of us have experimented with sin. Right? Just think back to when you were in high school or college and all you young people. Maybe you're experimenting with sin right now. Daniel's life encourages us not to experiment with sin, but experiment with faithfulness, experiment with holiness, experiment with righteousness. Because, only, because in a culture that is as pluralistic and materialistic and individualistic as we live in and consumeristic as we live in today, we're going to have to learn how to experiment without compromise. Let me give you an example. Jesus and the Apostle Paul give us many like ethical commands or injunctions throughout the New Testament. Things like uh, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, right? Um, forgive those who offend you 490 times, right? Or don't put any limit on, on, on forgiveness. Things like pray without ceasing, overcome evil with good, practice hospitality, bear one, another, uh, one another's burdens, right? We've heard all that, am I right? Experimentation, however, is necessary to put these commands into practice. Because no one really is really going to be able to tell you exactly how you need to live this out in that situation. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, I'm supposed to forgive my, this person who offended me. Well, Jesus, how am I supposed to do that? Well, Jesus is like, well, keep the heart of that command, and I don't care how you do it. Should I text them? Should I call them? Should I email them? Should I who? I don't care. Experiment. Boy, what works best? You see? This is how we should handle the spiritual disciplines, folks. If a certain style and way of praying isn't working for you, then do something else. Right? Uh, I remember uh, Dallas Willard, who is now gone to be with Jesus, he, you know, he's a professor that was very influential at USC, taught religion over there, and was sort of the the father of modern-day spiritual formation. Um, Anyway, Dallas Willard used to talk about how um, when he was teaching in his class, there were certain students that would just, like, want to debate him, you know, and they would they would argue. And <laughs> he used to feel like he had to always have the final word with those students. And of course, having the knowledge that he has, right? He's the professor. He's the teacher. He, you know, he should have the final word. And then the Holy Spirit began to convict him about that tendency. Why do you always have to have the final word? That's kind of prideful, isn't it? Right? So what he began to do is experiment with a spiritual discipline. And this was, it was this. He would, instead of trying to answer back those students that would try to argue his point or argue against his point, he would just graciously let them end the conversation. And when they said, no, but it's like this, but it's like that, he'd say, okay. 
and he'd agree and he wouldn't try to argue back. And he said I practiced, he would practice that spiritual discipline because there was something in his soul that he began to see of pride that was saying, you always have to have the final word. See? That's an example. Now, let me give you another one, just real quick. Some of you, you talk too much. And it gets you into trouble. I'm not singling any one of you out, okay? I'm looking right back there at the door. Husbands and wives, you don't be looking at each other right now. What can you do? What kind of spiritual experiment can you perform that keeps the heart of this command to, to not, as it says in James, right? Don't, uh, like to just basically watch your mouth, okay? <laughs> One of the things you can do is to practice silence and stillness. Practice not responding, just zipping it for 30 seconds and then say something. Okay. Do what you can do out of a heart of obedience to the Lord and the Lord will, will take you further, okay? This is how it works. Experiments of faithfulness. There's one command in the Gospels that was very troubling to many of us. When Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you want to come and follow me, there's one thing you lack, right? What does he say? Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me. That's it? That's all I got to do? <laughs> all right. Now, does Jesus mean to keep, for us to keep the heart of that? Yeah. Am I supposed to go sell everything I have right now? Give, to, give everything else to the poor and go follow Jesus? There's this tension, right? So what do I do? I want to keep the heart of that command. I'm going to be, Lord, maybe I need to experiment with this because if, unless I experiment with it, I'm not going to really know what you're talking about. So do an experiment. Take something that you own, sell it on eBay, and give the proceeds to the church. Get somebody in the church that needs it that's impoverished at that season of their life, right? Experiment with the heart of obedience. Experiment with faithfulness. This is what Daniel does throughout Babylon. And he learns to thrive. The last thing, because I'm almost, because we're almost out of time. But you ready? Daniel distinguishes himself as a person of excellence in Babylon. Daniel 6:3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Are you joking me? This dude is an Israelite. Yeah. That's how much favor and that's how excellent Daniel's life was. Well, let me unpack it just for a few minutes before we close here. Daniel's excellence was marked by several things. I'm only going to give you three today, all right? One of the things you see Daniel do is he treats people with humble respect. He treats his boss with humble respect. Remember who his boss is? The evil king Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> In fact, uh, there was a time when uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he calls Daniel in to interpret it. 
Daniel realizes the interpretation of the dream is not a good interpretation for the king. It's a bad one. And he says to the king, O king, I wish this interpretation was for your enemies and not for you. In other words, king, I wish this was for anyone but you. Think about that, folks. What would happen if we treated the people that are in power in our society, politics, government, your own boss that doesn't believe in God or that doesn't act godly, whatever, those who are making decisions about us and that we don't agree with, right? What if we treated them with that kind of respect and kindness? You know what we would gain? We would gain the right to be heard. Because the fact of the matter is we don't listen to people we think don't like us or don't respect us. If I don't, if I don't think you like me or, res- or not even like me, if I don't think you respect me, why would I listen to your opinion? Right? Daniel's excellent spirit comes out in his humble respect for those over him. That's how he treats his evil boss. That's an excellent spirit. Think about that the next time your boss makes a decision at your work that affects you negatively. The second thing, Daniel, let me continue. He does right when no one is looking. Now, there's a twist to this for Daniel because as we go on in the story, Daniel's coworkers want to take him down. They didn't like him. He was getting all this favor and success and all that. And they plotted to falsely accuse Daniel, trick the king into punishing Daniel for his lifestyle, which was built around prayer. It was wicked. It was evil. They knew Daniel prayed three times to God every day. And they wanted the king to create a law that said, basically, if you find anybody praying to any other god but you, king, then they get thrown into the lion's den. Guess what happens when Daniel finds out they passed the law? He goes into his room and he prays to God. He does the right thing, even though he knows he's going to get punished for it. Daniel, the principle here is that Daniel was practicing this kind of righteousness long before people ever even noticed. He did what was right in God's eyes, and he did it when no one was looking. And because he did it when no one was looking, he could continue doing right when everyone was against him. It doesn't matter if your boss isn't around and everyone else is slacking around you. Be an excellent worker. It doesn't matter if all the students in that class are cheating on the test. Don't cheat. It doesn't matter if everyone around you is gossiping on Twitter and Facebook. Don't participate in that. Here's another way to say it. Live your life in front of Jesus. Do what is right in front of him, even when no one is looking. And an excellent spirit will begin to get cultivated in your life. The last one is that Daniel learned how to go the extra mile. When there was a time when the king had a dream, it was so troubling, and he wanted to know what the dream meant. Remember this episode? So he calls in all the wise men, right, all the magicians, and he says, I want to know the meaning of my dream. And all the magicians are like, yes, we will give you the meaning of your dream, O king. Tell us your dream. And the king goes, no, you tell me what my dream was, and then I'll, then I'll know that the interpretation that you give me is the right one. Okay, they weren't expecting that. <laughs> they were like, you tell, no, well, there's no one that could ever do that. Who? 
Daniel finds out about it, right? All of a sudden, the king's like, hey, if you don't tell me what my dream was, I'm going to kill all of you. Talk about pressure on the job. Daniel finds out, and Daniel, what does he say? He starts improvising again. He says, okay, okay, okay. Daniel, he says, king, ask the king if he can give us a little more time. Because I don't know what I'm going to do right now, okay? And he goes and he seeks the Lord. He gets his friends together. Let's pray about this, right? He doesn't have to do this. I mean, ah, I get it. His life is on the line. But so is everyone else's life on the line. Daniel goes above the call of duty here. In a time of crisis when people's lives are at risk, he goes beyond. He goes above. That's excellence at work. Do more that is expected of you, young people. That's why your parents tell you, that's why they love it when you, uh, when you do things without them telling you. Like, oh, the dishes are clean. Oh, your room is clean. Oh, you know. Go be above and beyond. Not just for your parents, because that's an example, an expression of an excellent spirit happening in you. Here's another example. Leave the place just as nice, if not nicer, than when you left it. Excellence. Notice I'm not talking about perfectionism. Notice I'm not talking about, you know, you always getting good, good grades in school. I'm not talking just about that. It's about applying yourself to be your best and always learning to get better. An excellent spirit, going above and beyond. So for you adults who work a day job, if you're a, 15, if you're a $15 an hour employee, why don't you go to work and work as if you were a $30 an hour employee? And do it as, as unto the Lord. I guarantee you, promotion will not be far away. But it, just, it doesn't just work, right, in, in work and in school. It's in your character. Be excellent in your kindness, in your love for others. Go the extra. Tell the person next to you, go the extra mile. Experiment with faithfulness. Cultivate a value for excellence. For some of you, that starts with going home and cleaning your house. I'm serious, man. And I'm not going to throw that whole thing on you. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. You don't need to go there to, to, to have this value. Listen, some of you, it means dressing decently. When you go to the supermarket... Right? For some of you spouses in the house, it means dressing in a way that you know your spouse will, will want to be seen with you in public. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, go the extra mile. You, you get it. Let's live with the excellence of Daniel. Let's reflect on Daniel's life and go, God, how can I experiment with faithfulness where you've placed me? And literally begin, that's how thriving begins to build. You start moving out of survival mode and into thriving. At the end of the day, Daniel's 70 years later, he's still in Babylon. 
and he's doing great. There are Daniels in this room that God has called you for influence in areas of our society outside the local church. He wants you to impact those areas, those arenas of society for his glory. And you can do it with the spirit of Daniel. He's calling Daniels out of you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there are, I believe, <laughs> this gathering week in and week out is not just about getting some good information and even, you know, learning more about your word. It really is about getting equipped to be your people in and among uh, the consumeristic, materialistic, often ungodly culture in which we live. Some of us here, some of people in this room are students and they go to school every day and they see the influence of this. They don't even realize how much it's impacting them. But today, we want to have the faith of Daniel. We want to have the same excellent spirit as Daniel. We ask that you cultivate that within us. And may it begin with something small that you're showing us to do while no one is looking, Lord. May it begin with experiments of faithfulness where no one is looking, where we're just seeking to to not compromise our loyalty to you, but may need to improvise a little bit in how we carry out your commands. Lord, would you just give us wisdom today? I pray that over this church, over this people called New Life, that when we go into our workplaces as businessmen, as people in the medical field, as teachers, as workers, Lord God, in, you know, in, in, um, lower level or even upper level management as entrepreneurs and all the different jobs, Lord, that we work. We go into those arenas, Lord, knowing that you are with us, knowing, Lord God, that you want us to make an impact through our excellence and through our bold yet improvised loyalty to you. Jesus, give us that wisdom that we might be salt and light in the earth and make the kingdom of God undeniably attractive to the world around us. We thank you, Jesus, for this. I pray this blessing on every heart today. In your name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.